Welcome to the Campbell Conversations. I'm Grant Reher. Refugees and their resettlement have been prominent and challenging issues in the United States and throughout the world in recent years. My guest today is both a refugee and a writer on the topic. Dina Nayiri is originally from Iran, but was granted asylum to the United States when she was 10 years old. She's the author of The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You, and more recently, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Her writing has garnered many awards and accolades. Professor Nayiri is also on the faculty of St. Andrews University in Scotland. Professor Nayiri, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. So let me start with your first book, The Ungrateful Refugee. And the, the title of that book, I think, contains a deliberately provocative word, which is ungrateful. So mm-hmm. could you unpack the meaning of that word for the issues that you're dealing with in that book? Sure. I think in many ways, this was a taking back of a phrase you hear a lot. And I think from the very beginning, you know, when I was a kid arriving in Oklahoma in the U.S. in the the 90s, um, you know, you did hear people put those two words together, ungrateful refugee, which implies that you should not only be grateful, but you should be performing your gratitude for the benefit of the people already there, which of course doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, it also didn't make a lot of sense to me because uh, refugees are naturally, like the instinct is absolute gratitude to God and the, the government who's accepted you. I mean, your life has just been saved. So once you arrive, all you want to do is be useful. All you want to do is sh- like, you know, pray and be with your community and say, thanks. You know, what you don't want though, is people who are born way lucky are telling you to perform that gratitude that, that irks, that feels awful. And, and I think there's a lot of people who do feel con- compelled to do that sort of like gratitude theater and performance. So for me, it was, you know, I wanted to take back that phrase. I wanted to kind of ask, make people ask why, you know, we put, we say ungrateful refugee, but we don't say, oh, she's an ungrateful uh, physicist. (laughs) I don't know, you know, like there's this assumption that this is something that has to be a part of their lives now and experience. And I want to challenge that. I think gratitude is private. And I think Mm -hmm. it's something that it's between us and our communities and our people that we love and our deities over So what are the experiences of asylum seekers and refugees that the people living in the host countries least understand? Is it what you just set forward there or is there there something else that that people just don't get about refugees usually? I think there's a lot that people don't understand. And I think that's why I I divided the first book into five parts. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. um, it has kind of the entire arc of the refugee experience and the five parts were, you know, escape and um, waiting uh, in camps and things. There was asylum and asylum storytelling. There was um, assimilation and then there was cultural um, repatriation. And the reason I divided it into those five parts is because there are things in each of those parts that you know the native born don't really understand and I think it'd be helpful they would want to understand because a lot of them want to do well want to be kind want to you know kind of help people adjust to a new life but they make mistakes inadvertently and um and I think one thing that I did with the book that I, I I wanted to help kind of bridge that gap is to kind of compare each of these moments with something that's very universal we all experience for example mm-hmm. So the the camp portion, it's about waiting. And we've all been faced with waiting. We've all been forced to wait by someone with authority. And it's infuriating. You know, it's the worst place to be. And I think to understand how the biggest burden of refugee camp is not those tangible needs. It's the waiting. It's the not knowing, you know. 
Um, or for example, asylum storytelling. We've all told stories in situations where we really need the other person to believe us, you know, and just how incredible actually it makes us when we need that person to believe us. Um, it makes us worse. It makes us perform the story worse, you know, and, and I think that that's something else that's worth understanding. But but I think what overarches all of this that I think it, what I would communicate to people is to be aware of the fact that once you've lost everything and arrive in a new country, more than first order needs, you are consumed by your loss of identity and your shame. You know, there is so mm. much and I think there's a lot people do um, that they can do differently that can help, you know, refugees overcome that shame quicker, you know, like just don't give charity from like the perch of the, you know, the the helper, you know, don't put yourself above them. There's so much. I mean, I think it's it's all about like approaching these newcomers with the same curiosity and welcome that you would anybody else, you know, that comes to your, your community. Yeah, I think finding that theme of finding the universality of it was very uh, effective. So um, you, you also blend in memoir and, mm -hmm. and, and broader reflections, you know, along with the broader reflections and the analysis that you have in the book. So could you just briefly tell us your own story as a refugee? Sure. I mean, I was born in Iran in 1979, which is right around, well, right when the revolution happened. So before that, in the Iran of my parents, it, this was a secular Iran under the, uh, you know, kind of a monarchy, which had its own problems. Um, but, uh, you know, it was an Iran that was um, kind of becoming more modern and progressive. And there were the arts and literature and, and modern people. It was very, it was an interesting place. But then the Islamic Republic came in and and changed all that, put the women under the veil, took away so many of their rights, um, started persecuting religious minorities. And, um, and then the war happened too with Iraq. So uh, my story is that my mother was a Christian convert. She converted to Christianity when I was six and she was part of an underground church and deeply involved with all that. And she was also a doctor, so she treated a lot of vulnerable women. Um, and so she started kind of talking about Christianity was like her feminism, you know. Huh. Um, and so and she got into trouble and she got put in jail and we had to escape because her life was in danger. So we escaped the country when I was eight years old and we were two years displaced. Um, part of that time just undocumented in Dubai and then part of that time in Italy in a refugee camp before we were given asylum in the U.S. Wow. wow. So. Uh... I have to ask this question and and I hope I hope you won't resent it but do you do you ever have a desire to return to Iran? Oh no, why would I resent that question? I do I do want to. I mean, I imagine myself being able to go back there um, you know, and I, well, I think one thing we all dream about, uh, you know, the diaspora, the Iranian diaspora is to kind of step foot in the Caspian Sea again, um, you know, to go into the mountains and the little villages. I mean, one of the wonderful things about Iran that's, you know, I think an experience Americans won't have had is that um, it's a country where the cities can be very modern. Everyone's like got their phones and, you know, Wi-Fi and they understand American culture. And, um, you know, and, 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 you know, you have people who, who know music and literature and all that stuff. And then like half an hour away, you could be in a village that hasn't changed in 200 years. And like with a grandmother who hasn't, you know, changed in all that time and, 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 you know, really get the experience of just being immersed in, um, in a truly natural and bucolic, beautiful place that is untouched, I guess, by time. And, and that's what I miss. I want, well, I want to go and like grill fish on the Caspian with some grandmothers. 
That sounds wonderful. Now, some people might say some of the same things about Scotland that you just said about villages that haven't changed in 200 years. This is one of the reasons I love it. I mean, I can go half an hour this way and start hiking in the highlands and like run into people who are just like wonderful in that way. You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm speaking with Dina Nayiri. She's the author of The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You, and Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. So uh, broader question now, are there, are there significant trends um, in the prevalence of movements of refugees that, that you've been aware of in recent years that we should know about? Well, I mean, we know the big ones, and, and I should say that I'm not like a, um, a like geopolitical analyst of any kind, but, you know, I, I, I write about people's individual stories, but, um, you know, but you've seen, you've, you've seen what's going on in the world, you know, you've got, you know, people from Ukraine and Palestine and, 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 and other places, but I think the kind of, um, the kind of trends I'm interested in is is people's attitudes toward those refugees, you know, not necessarily mm. what happens, but what happens among, you know, the native born as they receive these people. And what I've seen in the UK is kind of a disturbing difference between how they treat the white refugees, you know, like Ukraine wow. versus, say, the refugees from you know, the Middle East and Africa. It's 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 a different attitude, it's a different level of empathy. And um and and that makes me sad, you know, because of course, um they all come from places of like ruin and ravage and war and 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 all wish for the same kind of opportunity to rebuild. I noticed that when I was in uh, England as well for several summers in terms of the attitudes toward immigrants, the Polish immigrants, for example, were pretty warmly received, but not so much some of the ones that you're talking about. There is one thing that I personally was surprised to learn, and I just wanted to put it out there and see if you had thoughts about it. But I, I was surprised recently to learn that the majority of refugees in the world, they resettle in the Southern Hemisphere. And I, I think there's a stereotype in the United States that this is a phenomenon that largely takes place in the industrialized West. That's where all the refugees no. are going. But they're 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 fleeing and going to neighboring countries yeah. that are in that area. Yeah, most of them. I don't know the exact numbers right now, but that's absolutely right. Most displaced people actually either get displaced within their own country, just something happens that they move or or in a neighboring country um, and, you know, they stay, they settle. And that's mm. it. Iran has a lot of refugees from Afghanistan, for example, who settle mm. and become Iranian. I think it's very easy for us to just look at things from the point of view of the West, like, oh, look at all these people coming. I mean, they're a tiny fraction of all of the people who have had to move. Um, you know, there isn't this idea that, um, oh, we are, we want to come and like en masse settle in the West. I think they just want to get to safety. Sometimes mm -hmm. safety means coming to the West. For example, people like my family um if you are you know an outspoken christian in a muslim country it doesn't help you to settle in a neighboring country do you know what i mean like they're all muslim country you have to just get out of that region and try to find your way to a country that has religious freedom you know um so you know for example in the story in in the book there's a story of how we were in dubai for 10 months and then my mother got in trouble with dubai they were going because they found out and they were going to deport her back and so the unhcr had to kind of step in and say these are refugees and we'll take them and then they took us to italy which is um which was a safe country for christians while they sorted out where we belong 
You're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. I'm Grant Reher, and I'm talking with Dina Mayuri. She's a professor at St. Andrews University in Scotland and the author of The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You, and more recently, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough? And we've been discussing the issues that she raises in those two books. So uh, you'll probably be interested to hear this, uh, Dina, but Syracuse is a uh, federally designated refugee resettlement area, along with uh, cities like Utica and Rochester. So this whole area up here in central New York. And Mm -hmm. it's my impression, I think it's widely shared, that these refuge, these waves of refugee populations that have come in have really helped to revitalize these cities, uh, in particular Utica, but you also see it in Syracuse, They both economically and certainly culturally. And, and I think it's to the point now where it's part of Syracuse's identity as a city, that yeah. this, is, this is who we are. So I'm just wondering, is that your sense of the general impact of having refugees come to any particular area that you get that mm-hmm. dynamic? Um, it is. I think, um, first of all, that's wonderful to hear. And I can't wait to be there and see for myself. <laughs> um, and it's it's very exciting. I always love to hear about communities that welcome refugees and that are changed by them. Because I think one thing that I want to make sure people understand is that this is only good for everyone. It's only like wonderful for refugees for the most part. Um, you know, what they want to do is come and immediately get back on their feet, be useful, help, put their skills to to good use and to like, you know, show I mean, it's such a shared compulsion for uh, that they want to show the native born that they were worth it, you know, that they um, will add something to that community. And often they do because, you know, refugees come from all walks of life and they have all kinds of skills and professions and talents and they put them to use there. But another thing is, I think, you know, in the UK and parts of the UK and the US, I've also heard these fears about, oh, will they change our culture? Will they change, you know, the feeling of our of our of our cities and like for me I, I want like you have to take such a long-term view because when I was growing up in Oklahoma for example um nobody from the Middle East had come into my community and changing the culture was essentially us you know adding our foods to the mix in the church and like bringing our music and our songs and things like that and all those things were actually joyful to receive for our you know for our community but nowadays like 20 years has passed and like say for example nobody would bat an eye at somebody bringing hummus to a church reception you know right. like people like your regular everyday american is like feeding the foods that we brought 20 years ago you know to their children and not really it's not doesn't make them less american it doesn't take away from their family culture because that's how change works like time works that way no matter how much you try to keep people out the fact is that the world is going to change your children and make them different from you you know and so all of these influences that you're so afraid of actually are 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 going to just enrich you know and and uh, who your children are in a different way you're not going to miss the the you know who they would have been had they had maybe a little bit less of this influence and a little more of this, you can't control that stuff, you know? Um, So I think it's a much happier existence for a community to embrace everything everyone has to bring and to like, just create like a much richer tapestry, you know? And I think those are the communities that thrive and they do so for a reason. So let's, let's shift to your more recent book, who gets believed. Um, What are the main issues that you're wrestling with there in that book? Well, 
the book came out of, you know, the, the last one. And that, you know, as I said, I was doing this, um, the different stages of the refugee life. And I was doing a lot of research. I put in stories from current um, refugees and people who had just received asylum or were on their way. And um, I had woven together my own story with theirs throughout this book. But after I finished it, I found myself just constantly returning to one of the sections, which was storytelling, you know, how asylum seekers and refugees are forced to tell their story in asylum interviews, but also in other contexts too, and how those stories are received. And I had all of these extra um, other stories that I hadn't yet um, put in the book, but there was one in particular I was absolutely obsessed with that I couldn't put in the first book because the Supreme Court case was still ongoing and, and I hadn't yet met him and his lawyer and it was such a big story and it hadn't quite come together and that was the story of KV and KV was a refugee who came from um, Sri Lanka and he came in 2011 at a, at a time where Sri Lanka was actually putting out a lot of refugees and a lot of them came in with these very characteristic torture scars on their backs you know and their arms because the Sri Lankan um, detention camps the Sri Lankan authorities were torturing people with hot soldering irons you know, in the same way over and over and over again, if they suspected that they had helped the Tamil Tigers in any way or resistance groups, you know. So he came in, uh, KV came in to the UK with these exact same scars. And somewhere along the line, I guess, the asylum officer who heard his story had been desensitized to this this story, these pictures, um, she or he had seen one too many, you know, and, and, and rejected his case for a completely made up reason that had been recently made up precisely because too many people were coming in with these same scars, which is that they called it self-infliction by proxy. Like hmm. he put the scars on his own back, they said, in order to get asylum. Like forget the fact that all of the humanitarian organizations are saying this is characteristic of Sri Lanka at the time. And that all the doctors were saying nobody would do this to themselves. Um, still, they rejected him. And it took years of going through the system before the Supreme Court said, this is absurd. You cannot create an entirely made up category and like attach such a burden of proof to the other categories that you kind of dump everyone into this one which has no burden of proof you know um so so that story had me so enthralled that I had to you know include it but it also made me want to expand out from refugees to other vulnerable people who are not believed for one reason or another you know we have the uh, wrongfully convicted we have people trying to get particular types of medicine um, or medical attention you know a lot of times vulnerable people the poor people of color you know being disbelieved by you know the people who are meant to help them mm -hmm. so i started gathering stories for those and, and of course again i wove in memoir because i had a childhood obsession with how to be believed and 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 not only that but i had been a refugee and i had also been someone who like came up through places like mckinsey and harvard business school and these places of like you know kind of elite education where they taught you how to be believed and as a former refugee i was just appalled all the time <laughs> some of the things and some of the tools that were handed to the privileged um I guess that I was now you know one of so um I felt that this was a topic that was rooted in my obsessions and um also uh, you know important because I had all these stories well this next question is related to this in a way but gets at it somewhat differently and that's it seems to me you mentioned, you know, putting everybody in one category uh, rather than seeing the differences that are there. And this related to that. It seems to me that the distinctions between refugees 
and uh, more traditionally considered immigrants are becoming blurred, at least in the United States, the way they get talked about. And I just wondered if, A, is that impression correct? And, and, and if it is correct, what do you think it reflects? Well, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to, because the thing is that um, the distinction is blurry. You know, and it, it is blurry because, um, you know, the world is changing. There's all kinds of reasons people get displaced, all different types of circumstances. And it's really hard to interpret something like the Refugee Convention. So just for our listeners who don't know the exact definition of a refugee, you know, in after World War II, um, you know, the nations, Europe and, and America, they got together and they um, signed the Refugee Convention, which is an agreement that they would take in people who've been displaced and in danger and who can't go back to their country countries um, based on five characteristics. So the danger has to be because of your race, religion, national identity, um, political opinion, or membership in a social group. So okay. if you are or, so if you are in one of these five categories um, and you've been persecuted and you're in danger, then you are owed, I guess, asylum. Right. The trouble is, so the people who originally drafted this, they created that fifth category membership in a social group to be kind of a giant, etc. What they didn't want is for something like the Holocaust to happen again to a group that they didn't anticipate. Right. So they yeah. were like, well, we don't know who the next persecuted group will be and why. So what we're going to say is something along the lines of for any reason you're in danger. Right. But now, like countries are, you know, like um, people who want to narrow that definition and to close the doors are basically just essentially narrowing the definition, saying things like, well, women are not a social group. Battered women are not a social group. You know, like if you've been involved with a, a if a gang has threatened you, you know, um, and you're in danger, that's not one of these categories or a social group. But the fact is, there's lots of different reasons people need to get away. You know, in Central America, you do have gang violence and threats. You have climate change. You have like people who have to run because they, the place they're living isn't sustainable. And then you've got people that we call migrants, economic migrants, who, you know, have to get away because they are dying, you know, because they can't get food or work or whatever in the place that they live. For some reason, we separate them out and say they are not real refugees. Well, I think those lines should blur because the fact is that those people are just in just as much danger, you know, um, at the end of the day, that's not a life any of us would accept either, you know, and mm -hmm. so um, it is complex. It is hard to know where on that spectrum to draw the line. Um, my personal you know, ideals and beliefs say you draw them in a place that is generous, you know, a place where like, if it was anything on this side of the line, you wouldn't be willing to live there because why should the accident of birth decide that, you know, you get to live happier than this mm -hmm. other person, you know? Mm -hmm. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media. And my guest is the writer, Dina Nairi. Uh, we got about four minutes left or so, but I want to try to squeeze in two more questions if I can. And you you already uh, anticipated the first one. You mentioned this at the very beginning of our conversation. You were saying that, you know, there's current situation. There are going to be a lot of Palestinian refugees. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I did want to ask you, what do you anticipate happening regarding refugees and their resettlement as a result of the Israel-Hamas war? Um, you know, what, what would you think is, is going to be the... Uh, uh, place where they go and 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 how's it going to work? I don't know. I'm not an expert in that region. I mean, I'm just kind of watching with horror uh, 
like everyone else. Um, you know, obviously it's, 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 it's sad because this is not a group of people that a lot of the neighboring countries want, you know, like the doors seem to be closed from every direction. And, 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 um, so, and, and also, you know, people don't want to leave. They don't want to leave their homes. They, you know, so I think there's a lot of, um, complicated issues there. I, I don't know. I have not like, um, I, I can't anticipate it, but I think as with every refugee crisis like this, you know, people in luckier countries and better should be ready to receive them, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, we, we should kind of be a little bit better at thinking, what would we want if we were in that situation? Mm. And, and this last question is, I wanted to give you some time for it because you, you mentioned also at the beginning suggestions about how the host people living in the host countries should be relating with the refugees and the things that they could do differently. And I did want to ask you, what do you think are the most important and doable changes in the refugee and asylum seeking process in the West, you know, particularly in the United States that, that, that you'd recommend? Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, lots of things that could be different short term and long term um, in the, and within communities and also with the systems, you know, so just very quickly within communities, I think it's really important to, you know, tend to those first order needs, but also come at these um, come kind of to greet these people from a place of curiosity, the kind of curiosity you would have for someone new to your community that is kind of rooted in wanting to be their friend and friendship and welcome and all of that. From a, uh, the in terms of systems and asylum systems, etc., um, one of the biggest problems that I heard about from asylum lawyers is that not everyone gets equal representation. And some of the reasons that people get rejected um, and sent back into danger is because they come in and they're kind of forced to speak to an asylum officer before talking to any kind of legal representation, they say the wrong thing and immediately have themselves put in the wrong category. For example, if they come in and say something like, yes, well, you know, I was um, I was Christian minority in Iran and persecuted, but also, you know, we had some funny money trouble. Like, well, there you go. They'll immediately put you in the economic migrant category because you said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. One of the um, lawyers that I talked to said the number one predictor of whether or not someone will get asylum is nothing in their background, but whether or not they have a lawyer. And that is not fair because then the rich will you know, always do better. You know, people who have means and money and education will always do better. People who are closer to a Western culture will always do better. Second thing is I think there needs to be better training of asylum officers, um, you know, uh, in, in, in cultural storytelling, the way that people, you know, tend to be um, tend to tell their story in different cultures so that it doesn't, they don't think immediately that someone is acting suspiciously when they're really just telling their story according to their own cultural rules. But all that stuff is just, um, it's complicated and hard to implement and a, and a little bit kind of longer term. But I think, yeah, there's a lot we can do. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, that was Dina Nairi. And again, her two books are The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You, and Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Also, on Friday, November 10th, she'll be giving a talk at Syracuse University titled Reconsidering Refugees and Immigration. That's at 4 p.m. in the Maxwell Hall Auditorium. And for more information on that free event, which is open to the public, please visit the website of the Maxwell School's Campbell Public Affairs Institute. But for now, we'll leave our conversation there. Dina, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. This is very interesting and insightful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Campbell Conversations on WRVO Public Media, conversations in the public interest.
Campbell Conversations, Conversations in the Public Interest is hosted and produced by Grant Reher, engineered by Tom Fazio. Assistant producer is Jacqueline Witwicky, and the program is edited by Mark Lefonier. The Campbell Conversations is a joint production of the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at Syracuse University and WBARBO Public Media. To learn more about the program and hear previous interviews, visit wbarbo.org slash Campbell Conversations.